This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hey, just a quick heads up that this podcast contains content that some people might find disturbing. So please take care while listening. So it might take a second to find it. I'm not yeah, sure. Okay. National Post reporter Joseph Breen and I are wandering through a cemetery in the east end of Toronto. What is this, the St. John's? This is St. John's Anglican, St. John's Norway Anglican, which is, uh, as a graveyard, is open to people of all faith and traditions. We're looking for a specific gravestone. It's an unusual gravestone. For a man named Brandon Truax. I think it's roughly there, but if we go up past the crematorium, I think we'll run into it. Joe wrote a profile on Brandon just weeks before he died in 2019. I was playing my tape of, of his interview. And just as a writer, you, you, you realize sometimes how much you've left out and details that like at times maybe didn't fit. And, and then you're right back into that uh, tragedy. Brandon was a computer engineer too. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, I, I remember reading that. There it is. I mean, it's kind of beautiful. <laughs> I've never seen anything like it. Maybe beautiful is the wrong word. There's a lot it's going on. It's yeah. a, a, a tree is holding up Brandon Truax's name at the top and his partner Riyad Swadan's name and birth date are engraved below Brandon's with no date of death because he's still alive. I don't know who designed it or how or why. And it was hard even because once it became clear that I needed to talk to someone who loved him and knew him long-term and well, it became hard because he was almost a cult leader in a wildly successful cosmetics company and everybody who knew him was being paid by his company. And then when you ask, well, okay, who, who can tell me how it came to this? I found no satisfactory answer. From Post Media and Antica Productions, this is True Crime Byline. I'm Kathleen Goldhar. Brandon Truax was born Ali Roshan in Iran just before the revolution. And the revolution, as it did to many families, caused turmoil in his family. And they came to Canada when he was a child. And his father eventually returned and his mother died of cancer. He became Brandon Truax in recognition of people who helped him, as he described it, grow up and survive and grow into the successful businessman that he was. Successful is a bit of an understatement. 
Brandon would become a cosmetics tycoon. He actually studied computer science at the University of Waterloo, but he'd always been interested in the world of beauty. In his early career, he did work with laboratories in Mississauga and in New York, learning how creams and cosmetic products are made and what parts of them are the expensive and active ingredients and what parts of them are the fillers and incidental ingredients. And that was basically where he saw the spark of what would eventually make him millions of dollars. And that's Decium. So tell me about Decium. Decium was huge. Decium is huge. It grew incredibly fast. And he was a young man, right? I mean, he, we're not talking a very experienced businessman here. He was an entrepreneur. He had one negative experience with a smaller company. But no, he wasn't a, a hugely experienced businessman. But what he did have was a deep understanding of how cosmetics were actually made. And what he did was take that knowledge that he had acquired through uh, working with some of those cosmetics laboratories and started marketing his products with an emphasis on consumers buying only the active ingredient. What that meant was that Decium could sell its products for way less than other brands. Their most famous line is called The Ordinary. And at the time, none of its products cost more than $20. And it was a game changer. Even Kim Kardashian was using their stuff. The company grew super fast. And what kind of money are we talking about? Like what kind of sales or revenue? Or... In the final year of Brandon's leadership, $300 million. Holy. But it wasn't just Desim's products that had customers and investors excited. They were drawn to its founder. He was a firecracker. He was handsome. He was young. He spoke a mile a minute. And... He spoke seriously about the big money of makeup. He was always in the press waxing rhapsodically about the smell of, of pineapple or argan oil or the consumer-focused idea that big corporate makeup is ripping you off. And that Brandon was obsessive and totally hands-on. He ran the marketing, he built the computer systems, he was in charge of the development of the products, he knew every part of that company, top to bottom. And Decium just kept growing. On track to quadruple, quintuple in size, that was the plan. They had 30 stores around the world. This started in Toronto, but they had properties in New York, in London, in Mexico at the highest level of cosmetic retail, and that attracted the fateful investment of Estee Lauder, which paid $50 million for a third of the company. Estee Lauder is one of the biggest cosmetic companies in the world. They do billions of dollars in sales every year, and their investment took Decium and Brandon to the next level. Living the life flush with money, flush with investment, forever in the most glamorous capitals of the world, posting pictures of himself on private jets and in the nicest hotels, and yet also maintaining his 
charismatic power over a team in the headquarters in Toronto, which had the buzz of a startup, but the money of an established player. But things did start to unravel. So tell me about how his behavior started to make people concerned. As a self-made man, Brandon professed a very clear sense of his own morality, that he did things by the book and he did them honestly. And that became the source of one of his primary fixations, which was his suspicions about financial impropriety. It began basically with a loan. Brandon got some suspicions that in the process of repaying a loan, there was some skullduggery going on. And he started worrying that under his nose, money was not being properly handled and he did what he thought was the right thing to do, which was to go to the absolute tippy-top of Estee Lauder, to Mr. Lauder himself. Brandon told Joe that Mr. Lauder politely replied to his emails, at least at first, but he just kept pestering him, and eventually Mr. Lauder stopped responding altogether. Some people would stew and be upset or try something else. Brandon controlled Desium's Instagram. Brandon controlled Desium's email systems. Brandon controlled Desium. And when he did not get the answer that he wanted from his only large minority investor, he decided that he was so determined to be honest that his suspicions, which in hindsight are probably entirely false, that what he had to do was share these suspicions with the world. And that was the beginning of the end. Once he started doing that, then this charismatic figure who had attracted all of this influence and attention to the Decium brand quite quickly became the greatest corporate threat to Decium. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. On a trip to Amsterdam, Brandon offered his co-CEO magic mushrooms. He'd been very open about his longtime mushroom habit, but this behavior worried those who were closest to him. That did not go well. She did not like that. He was also becoming increasingly paranoid. He had a moment in the Toronto office where he thought he overheard people wondering whether he was on crystal meth which he took as an insult. And I think he took it as a way for them to dismiss his concerns about financial impropriety. In his disordered thinking, he decided that the thing to do in order to prove the sincerity of his suspicions was to start doing crystal meth. He started living out his apparent psychosis through the company's Instagram channels. He was fixated on unearthing the conspiracy in the company. And doing this 
while digging himself deeper into his own hole of trying to justify his paranoia rather than address it. As Brandon's mental health deteriorated, his behavior got more and more erratic. He canceled all of Decium's marketing and fired his co-CEO. This did not go unnoticed by his colleagues, both at Decium and at Estee Lauder. At the end of May 2018, there's an emergency board meeting in New York to deal with the fact that Brandon is clearly mentally ill and perhaps already psychotic. All of this comes to a head a few months later, on the Thanksgiving long weekend in October. And he simply sent an email. And that email instructed every employee of Decium at its headquarters in Toronto, at every store around the world, not to show up the next day at work. And if they did, they would be fired. And he initiated uh, an entire shutdown of a company that was on track to make hundreds of million dollars over the coming year. And because Decium was a company incorporated under the laws of Canada, you can't do that to your investors. So Estee Lauder and another investor brought a motion to have Brandon removed as CEO. And the judge made it clear that he had heard more than enough reason to grant this motion. Brandon would effectively be kicked out of Decium. He would have to surrender control of their social media, and he was forbidden from contacting their employees or entering their stores. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This is when you started covering the story, though, right? I had never heard of Decium before this. It's my ignorance of the makeup world, I guess. <laughs> but I heard about this because... Instagram was blowing up with this and it became a news story because there was an emergency hearing in Ontario Superior Court in which a famous Canadian cosmetics entrepreneur would be facing off against a large American conglomerate. Joe's editor sent him down to the courthouse to cover the story. And I remember sitting in one of the court buildings and trying to devise what we call a skedline which is a short sentence that tells my editors what my story is going to say when I file it this afternoon. And it was impossible. You could write a book about this. And I called in and wisely, I think, they allowed me to take a breath, let the Canadian press do what they do best, which is a quick, accurate report on the day's events, 
and that what I would do is go upstairs to the file room, start pulling stuff, start trying to reach Brandon. Because this is one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you about this case, because obviously initially, without anybody knowing much about the story, it seemed like a business case of one big conglomerate trying to wrestle control from a founder who was having some kind of trouble. But what you discovered was way more complicated, right? I have no business covering a major financial court case scandal. It's not that I don't care or appreciate financial journalism. It's just not what I do, and I don't know how to do it. However, you're right. It became clear to me that this is not quite what this was, that what this was going to be was a challenge in fairly and responsibly writing about a prominent mentally ill person who was going to be both my subject and my source. And that is something that I've done a lot of and am very interested in because I feel strongly that people with mental illness in their crisis moments deserve to be heard and deserve to speak and share what they have to say through the media as any other person would, but also that they engage a whole new set of problems about fairness and ethics and responsible reporting of people whose vulnerability is that they can hurt themselves by what they say. So tell me a little bit about how you make those decisions. What are those ethical questions that you're asking yourself and that your editors are talking to you about? And how do you get to the place where you feel like you can write something that's fair and accurate, but also protecting a person who, like you said, can hurt themselves? It wasn't clear to me immediately that that's what this was. It took a while to understand that this was a story about Brandon, not about Desiam. And it took reading the court file, largely from the perspective of the wronged investors, about what he had been doing. And you read that, and you start to see signs of mania. You see psychosis. You see paranoia. Or at least stuff that looks that way and that in other contexts would have been recognized. But he was the boss. So the money and the corporate financial story was the reason and the justification to look into it. But what you found was a man in decline. Joe knew the court records only told part of the story. And it was clear from the media record that he talks to reporters all the time. But none of the reporters covering the hearing managed to reach him. And it wasn't clear that he was even available. I emailed his work address, personal email. I called every phone number. I left messages wherever I could. Eventually, Brandon replied. And I now understand that what had happened was that Brandon had just got access to a computer, to his email. And I don't know whether it was luck. He certainly didn't know me. But he replied to my email and he said, please call me. And he gave me the phone number of a psychiatric hospital in London, England, where he was being held on a two-week hold. And I remember that moment because sometimes you know you have to ask for things, but then when you get them, you don't know whether you should use them. Interviewing someone in jail is relatively straightforward. It's clear why they're there. Interviewing someone in a mental hospital engages a different set of problems. They're held against their will, but not because they've done anything wrong. 
They're unreliable narrators. <laughs> they're unreliable and they're often a risk to themselves. And it's irresponsible to trumpet paranoia to the world without questioning it. My notes are full of notes to myself. This is where we don't trust Brandon. Check this, check this. And so I remember getting the reply and immediately asked my editor, like, do we do this? I'm, I'm not going to do this on my own without engaging all the editorial support that I have. And the answer came, yeah, do it. And I didn't wait a second. I called and I reached Brandon in the hospital and he was keen to talk. He had been in there for more than a week or about a week and he was cogent and sober. I've now been here for six days in a room. I have no access to, I don't have any clean underwear. I'm constantly sitting here eating egg sandwich every day with, with orange juice. cigarettes. charged with anything? No charge, no, they're saying I'm mentally unstable. Brandon told Joe how he ended up in the hospital. So, as I was walking in a park in, in, in London, um, uh, this was last, it's been six days now, last Sunday. And he saw a movie shoot near St. James Park. There were basically these two big trailers called that put wrote on it, movie makers on it. And, and the streets in London on that, they seemed to be set up almost like a movie just behind it. And he asked someone what the movie was about. And he described hearing something like they're choosing a new government and the army's involved somehow. I didn't understand if it was part of the movie or if it was actually a real political army selection. That's what the guard said. He explained to me why he was confused, but a clear-thinking person would not have been confused by a few film trucks on the street. He walks beside the prime minister's residence on Downing Street, and there are guards there. And he gets into a confrontation with one guard somehow. He's asking this guard about why they're choosing an army or how they're choosing an army or a government. Eventually, that ends the way it's going to end. I was pushed against the wall and I said, look, I'm not sure what's going on. All my ID was taken out. I said, look, please, if I've done something wrong, please. Look, I was shocked. I was provoked to be in a state to, to basically say, please help me. Brandon was detained and sent to a psychiatric hospital. So how did you decide what to publish, what not to publish, what to focus on in this story? When you kind of can see that there's an actual, there is a real business story happening. He was told to get out. There's no criminality involved. But at the same time, you've now had confirmation that this man is struggling with reality. Mm -hmm. Tell me about sort of the factors that you're considering and what you ended up publishing. So the first thing was, was to hear him out fully adequately professionally, I guess. He's a talker and needs to be guided with questions. It took a long time, but um, I started by hearing him out and cross-referencing what he was telling me with what I knew that Estee Lauder thought or said. And to treat this at the beginning as I would any other court case in the civil context, in which I don't have a side, I just want to know what you're fighting about. Um, I got a handle on that, and it was clear that neither side saw a particular point of conflict that would be easily fixed. He had been doing things like uh, signing a lease on a new corporate headquarters in Toronto without informing the board. 
He tried to buy a plane by himself without the company's knowledge or consent. So once I got a sense that they were in an intractable position in which one side's going to have to win, as indeed they did, then I had to consider that what I'm writing is not really a story about a court case, that it's a story about a mentally ill man for whom the primary source is that mentally ill man, Mm -hmm. a mentally ill man who denies he's mentally ill. And one important strategy to treat him with the fairness and the respect that he deserves in that weakened and vulnerable state is to find people who love him or people who he trusts. I remember asking him, do you have a lawyer you trust? He said, no. I said, do you have a lawyer you don't trust? (laughs) And he didn't trust a lot of people. And he was not able to tell me who I should speak to in the circle of people who love him. I think his circle was his company. I think the people who knew him worked for him. So in the stories that you wrote, did you acknowledge his mental health struggles? You must have. Oh, yes. I both acknowledged his mental health struggles and also included his denial Mm -hmm. that he was mentally ill. Now, I, I wasn't playing cutesy. It's clear to me that he is mentally ill. He was held multiple times in psychiatric hospitals for valid reasons. The law often requires psychiatric patients to be released. It doesn't mean that they're cured. So I I wasn't trying to be coy, uh, but I was allowing the facts to speak for themselves. And it's also possible to write about that in a way that's not mockery or salacious interest in extreme mental distress, that we can face this head on and understand that here we have a a situation where the greatest threat to Desiem is Brandon Truax. And the greatest threat to Brandon Truax is also Brandon Truax. Mm -hmm. And I find it interesting too, like I've had people push back on me that we shouldn't even be telling these stories as journalists because their actions are based in a mental health crisis Mm -hmm. and that we should really just move on. Mm -hmm. How do you sort of factor that in? Well, I deeply disagree with the notion that we need to look away from people who are mentally ill at their most newsworthy moments. In fact, I think quite the opposite. And I think it's important to recognize that mentally ill people can express themselves, should be given the opportunity to express themselves and should be listened to with a sympathetic and an insightful and informed ear to understand that in amongst the paranoid delusions that there may be important truths that are not included in the corporate affidavit that's going to be used to protect a $50 million investment. That it's true that by inviting comment... I offer people an opportunity to hurt themselves. So it's delicate and it puts a huge responsibility on me. I was interested to know how it came to this, how such success could be undone at the stroke of a judge's pen and 
what that must do to a person who, by force of his own character and intelligence, had brought himself so high and then ruined it all. Eventually, all of this goes into a long feature for the Financial Post. The main story I wrote about him ends, it almost kind of evaporates because there is no conclusion. In fact, he got maybe even more famous after he was removed as CEO because now he was this sort of free-roaming, jet-setting, rich guy, still owned Decium, or a third of it at least, just couldn't do anything with it. It became a period for me of constantly nervously checking Brandon's Instagram every day, and every day I would find a new video. He would walk in with his camera rolling to a, a Decium store. He would lie in a hotel room and ramble. He would take videos of himself in taxis and cars, and he would tag prominent figures who, as I know through hard experience, sometimes populate the paranoid fantasies of people who have lost their grip on reality. And sadly, his story ended pretty violently. In January, after the the Thanksgiving, when he was removed, I was at my desk at work, and my editor came to me and told me that there was a story online that Brandon Truax was dead. He fell from his 32nd floor condo in the distillery district and landed on the sixth floor. Police never said whether Brandon fell that night or if he jumped. Perhaps it does take a overly sympathetic leap of faith to imagine that it was truly accidental, but uh, stranger things have happened in the life of Brandon Truex. How did the whole saga sort of influence the way you write about mental health now or that you see stories? Like, did it sort of affect you in your professional life in any way? It did, and it does. Um, I was attracted to Brandon's story because he was his own victim, and I'm intrigued by that dynamic. In my experience, it's often a male dynamic. I've written lots of stories about men who, in all kinds of walks of life, who are their own worst enemy and do things that hurt themselves and the people around them, often because of mental disorder, and yet also deserve some sympathy. And I think as a journalist, bringing a reader to a position where they understand more deeply that this villain in the news might actually deserve more of your sympathy than you thought when you read the headline is an attractive dynamic for me. It doesn't mean that I project that onto a story, but I have covered many stories that turn out that way, where I start looking at someone as a bad guy, 
And the closer you look, you realize that there aren't usually bad guys. There's complicated guys. Byline is produced and mixed by Mitchell Stewart and hosted by me, Kathleen Goldhar. Our associate producer is Emily Morantz. The executive producers at Post Media are Andrea Hill, Chris Gallipo, and Erica Tustin. Stuart Cox is the president of Antiga. Special thanks to Rob Roberts, the editor-in-chief of the National Post, and Aaron Valwa, the vice president, digital strategy for Post Media. If you're a journalist and you think you have a story that would work really well on this podcast, let us know. Send us an email at truecrimebyline at postmedia.com. <laughs>